0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a rainy and autumn day here in the capital is Robert Scriven. Rob is a director at eCar Parts Limited, a supplier of wholesale MG Rover parts based in Sandy, Bedfordshire. The business was first incorporated in 2003 with Rob on its Board of Directors from the very beginning. Uh, Rob, very warm welcome to yourself, and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Thank you. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to have you on the airwaves with us and um, normally we dive straight in to the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus but just considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation I think it's appropriate that we start there because it's proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life but for you and your business Rob to what extent has it affected you and your operations?
1: Um well we closed our business on the twenty third of march um we had one of our um staff members his father was diagnosed um with it and he became very seriously ill um so we, we just shut the business closed it completely um um and we were fifth of um sorry the first of may um you know I've been in business a long time now um you know and it, it I come home didn't really know what to do. I was a bit lost with it really i was I was worried about um, where we was going to you know where we was going to go you know we've got quite quite large overheads and that that the business touch was mm. is quite robust um and then, you know we was just completely lost of, of where to go you know and um, just habit watching the news all the while and all over the, the updates but, I don't know for a week or so in i I could see that you know, there was support available to us as a business to support the business and our staff. Um, I feel that our, our chance to that, um, we was privileged enough to be spoken to um, a £25,000 grant. Um, our business uh, rates for the, the year have been waived and obviously the furlough payments for our staff. Uh, we then, we reopened the business in May, um, we we had we had ten employees. We opened with just um, myself uh, and Nick, my fellow director, one of my fellow directors, uh, and we we basically we only had another three staff to start with. Alongside us, um, in, in RAC they've been very supportive throughout this as well, um, you know, and helped us along the way with. Um, risk assessments and methods Mm. to reopen the business safely, which we've adhered to, you know. But it's it's, it's challenging times. Um, And business is very different now, very, very different, you know, in terms of how we build a customer uh, and and the supplier. Um, But what what happened been disappointing for us, and this is one of the main reasons that I've wanted to do this. I feel that some of our suppliers – Main, uh, vehicle main dealers, especially that we we had accounts with, uh, and were buying our parts from to keep our you know keep our business going. They've all shrunk their businesses, and I don't see why. Because um, we've seen since we've been back, we've seen a massive uplift in um, parts sales all the way. But the big big players, the big main dealer groups, they've sort of closed uh, accounts, um, don't deliver parts anymore. Uh, they shrunk their parts departments, and I, I don't see why because our, our trade is very very buoyant at the moment. Mm. And you know, um, and I, I, I just feel that maybe a lot of the larger companies have maybe taken advantage of what's been offered to them by government in terms of furlough and grants and that, rather than focusing on their businesses. So I think it's a great shame that that's that's the main reason that I wanted to take part in this today. You know. I don't. I don't feel that maybe some of the larger organisations have been quite truthful with this with um, the furlough thing and everything, you know. And it, it's just it, it's a shame because it was put in place for, for good reason. Um, and like what, what I say, what, what we're seeing is I, I I don't feel that a lot of these these companies were quite, you know, their their businesses were strong and they didn't need to do what they've done. So you know, you might be able to sort of like advise me further on that, but,
0: Well, we have seen a few um, instances of businesses that have streamlined out of necessity during this time, but I think you are right. I think there are instances of larger corporations certainly offloading staff and resources in various uh, matters where maybe the need wasn't necessarily there. So it is something that is out there. It should certainly be uh, scrutinized and uh, discussed. I think that's absolutely right. Just focusing on um, yeah. your own business, um, just for a moment, and Shifting focus ever so slightly, as it became yeah. clear the scale of the COVID nineteen challenge. I am interested to understand how, as a small business owner, you mentally prepared yourself to try and deal with all of this. Because mental health, um, especially, and that sort of uh, that side of things, it's really been thrust back yeah, into definitely. national limelight by all of this. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, well, you know, from my own perspective, you know, I. I, I was extremely anxious about our future, you know, and we employ staff, and I, and I was obviously I was I was concerned that we'd have to let people go. We, we didn't really know where we was going, you know, and uh, you know, we, we, with that in mind, I've had some sleepless nights and that, you know, and, and when we went back, would we have a business to go back to? Would the business survive? Um, but, but you know, we, we we've been extremely lucky. Our sector, the the, the automotive sector, I i it a um it's such a robust business. We, we've seen recessions. Uh, you know, people won't give their cars up. We've we survived recessions um, and managed very well through that. But, yeah, um, it, it, it's worrying times. And I was worried that we, we've had account customers in, for our garage um, that are mainly a lot of them in construction and that, and they remain closed, you know. And, and um, we they, we had quite a lot of monies owing to the general... Although we've been sort of paid now, it's, um, yeah, it, it, it was it was worrying times, worrying times. But as I say, like I said previously, the support that we we've, we've seen uh, from from the Conservative government has, has been excellent. It really has, you know. And we've we've used it in the correct manner as well. As our business started to sort of uh, the booking started to get back to normal, I've, I've reintroduced staff, um, and when we're we're fully fully, you know, with our staff. You know, we was back to full strength by uh, July. So, you know, going forward, I, I, the, the business touch wood, um you know, seems seems to be uh, performing very well. Uh, that's, that's what I can ask for, really.
0: And has this last few months taught you anything, would you say, in your leadership capacity? Have you learned anything about yourself, the people around you from managing a crisis like this?
1: Um, yes. Yes, I, 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 I have really. Yeah, I've I realised how much I value my staff. Um and the responsibility, you know, that obviously they're, they're reliant on their salaries from us and they've all got mortgages and families. Um, yeah, and I, and I, I, we took each day as it come really, when we got back, taking each day as it come, um, you know, with what, what, you know, what came along in terms of workload, um, um, you know, and people, people that work for us, a lot of them were concerned about losing their jobs and things, you know, and we're reassured those, um, you know, but yeah, yeah, it's, Every day is a school day when you run a small business. We, you know, because we, we don't have we don't have sort of departments to cover IT, and you know, we this all we have to wear all on the hats and do everything. You know, uh, and I've, I've noticed that since we've been back, especially some of our younger staff. Uh, I've, I've got two apprentices, and one of them in particular he stepped up um, stepped up to the plate. You know, in terms of the, I, I can see that he's understanding. You know, run, running a business is expensive. It's expensive, and that you know, and he's 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 um he seems to have matured through this. In fact, it's the that his father was um, gravely ill with COVID, and thankfully he, he he'd come through it. But mm. but yeah, it's it's uh yeah, it's uh it's all it's all been very different. And If someone had you know said that we'd be operating our business this time last year, and we'd be measuring how we are with all the PFP that we've got in place, and Having, uh, screens built across the counter and uh, risk assessments for what we're doing and I mean when, we, when a car comes into the workshop we sanitise it um, all the surfaces are uh, uh, cleaned and the keys are cleaned and everything and it's, it's all added, um, obviously it's all time that we can't charge for you know but, but but we're managing it, we're getting through it so you know that's that's uh, you know I've been quite pleased with how we've managed to change how we work and it, and this is the new normal now, isn't it, for the mm-hmm. future, so...
0: It is really good to Um, hear that adapting to meet the challenges of this uh, pandemic um, has been something that you've been able to take in your stride as well. And uh, it's so important, Mm. um, especially for those younger generations of people tuning into this, that that phrase, every day is a school day when you run a small business, is something that's heeded because so much of running a business is trial and error. And even when you're a leader in your own business, you're never a finished product, are you? You're constantly learning, constantly developing and improving. You are. Exactly.
1: Yeah, Totally. Totally, and um, you know, it's um, like I say. I always like to have one or two apprentices with us, and, and and you know, they're our future. You know, and to see them um, rising to the challenge and understanding that things are different, different, and they're happening a little bit difficult. It's, it's been, I've enjoyed that. I've enjoyed seeing it, seeing them develop. You know, uh, so we'll see. Let's see where where we are come uh, the spring. That's that's what basically that's the target I've set mm. up as a business is um, we'll get through till March, um, to the end of the financial year, and then hopefully things may be a little bit better going forward from there. But nobody's going to know, are they? This is the thing nobody really knows.
0: Mm, That that is a big issue. Mm. It's it's Mm. a big issue for business because now the short-term future has gone from Maybe the next twelve months to literally a matter of weeks, hasn't it? We can no longer really plan yeah. with any certainty. We have to keep things very, yeah. very short term, and exactly that. it's, it's exactly so that. hard as a result of that to be proactive. You're constantly having to be reactive, be on the back foot, and get ready for yeah. changing guidelines and changing circumstances.
1: Definitely, definitely. We've we literally Nick and I, who's my business partner. We we just uh, take each quarter as it comes now. And then we just review I mean, we've just obviously just come to come to the end of the last call. And we've just reviewed where we are, uh, looked at our position to where we were last year. You know, and we're not too far behind. So wow. I, I can only. That, you know. So, as I say, so we just have a quarter and look forward to. Uh,
0: yeah. It's great as well that. SMEs like yourselves are working with apprentices as well, because we've heard um, a great deal already about the impact that COVID-19 is having on the economy and non-employment and training and access to opportunities for young apprentices. It's going to be so, so important uh, to help upskill the workforce going forward and help them find sustainable employment. So it's fantastic to see that something that you're actively engaged in. And thinking about the future now in just a little bit more detail because I'm conscious that we are running uh, short of time on the programme. We know that the new normal is going to be here to stay probably until at least March, maybe even longer, depending on how the pandemic does pan out. Um, But 12 months from now, I know, of course, you're only really looking to the spring at the moment, but where do you see yourselves being next year in an ideal world and what are you really hoping to achieve?
1: Well, I'm I'm, I'm hoping that our business sort of um, plans will, will sort of carry on as as we um uh, sort of we've looking sort of at the start of the financial year you know and and looking at where we are now um i'm I'm quite confident the the thing that concerns me is if, if we was to get a local lockdown down where we are um I could see that, that that would set us set us back um again you know i mean our business is in uh, sandy in Bedfordshire. I don't, I don't know if you know that its it's quite a relatively small market town. Uh, but there's a lot of new housing being built in this region, as there is in most regions. Um, so we're seeing new customers all the while, uh, and that. Um, but we just need to just want to keep hopefully seeing the continued growth that, that we're that we're getting, you know. Uh, but you know, we have had I think cost. That's the other thing I meant to mention a little bit previously. Um, a lot of our suppliers and that um, the discounts um, that we was getting as a trade customers, the discounts uh, aren't what they were. Um, you know, So, obviously, the, our retail prices have gone up as a result of that as well. Uh, and, I mean, we we fit tyres as well, and there's a shortage of, of tyres on the horizon according to the two wholesalers that we buy from, because a lot of it comes from the Far East. Um, and we're noticing now that there's um, popular sizes of tyres in some brands and that we're struggling to purchase. Um, uh, and the, the prices, as I say, they're starting to rise. So. I'm just hoping that that we we don't see, you know, um, mm. you know, sort of big price hikes and inflation um, going forward. But I, I don't know. You, you probably would know more about that than myself. But that, that's that's a concern that we have. Is you know whether our costs will start to escalate um, on the end of this? Side. We're, you know, we'll have to see.
0: I can't say I'm a qualified economist uh, myself uh, there, no. but um, let's just keep our fingers crossed, of course, that that isn't going to uh, to be the case and we all have to bear the yeah. financial brunt of uh, what's been going on. Um, I've got to say, it's been an incredibly enlightening experience um, having you join us on the programme uh, today, Rob, and I've thoroughly enjoyed having That's you with fine. us. And yeah, thank you. You I actually uh, think as well that just given how many variables there still are in this, it would be great to catch up at some point in the next 12 months and have you back on the programme with us just to see how things are uh, yeah, developing.
1: Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, yeah, I'd look forward to it.
0: That would be wonderful. Um, thank you so much um, for the time taken to join us this afternoon, Rob. It certainly is appreciated. Yeah, and my um, most my importantly. Pleasure. My pleasure. Um, Most importantly as well, um, with everything that is still going on, um, do take care and stay safe um, with all going on in the world in the meantime. And that goes for family, everybody that you work with and all of your customers as well.
1: Thank you. Likewise. Thank you very much.
0: I'd also reiterate that message to all of our listeners tuning in today as well. Um, Do continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others too because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, it was a real pleasure welcoming Robert Scriven onto today's programme. He is director at eCar Parts Limited in Sandy Bedfordshire. Um, coming up next on today's programme, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Now, during his professional football career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for clubs including West Ham, United and Stoke City among others, but he remains most renowned of course for the fact that he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in a world cup final that came after his treble in england's 4-2 triumph over west germany at the old wembley stadium 54 long years ago now so jeff will be looking back on some of the highlights of his career the importance of robust leadership throughout and leaving a message of thanks to our wonderful nhs so jeff will be joining us shortly and now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning.
2: Uh, good morning. How are you?
0: Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it?
2: It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. It's uh, it's lovely.
0: It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed and Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it, or would you prefer him to fluff his lines?
2: I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record, and Goodness me, It's nearly 60 years, I guess, if if, uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A A for him, he's a fantastic player, a tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I want England to be successful. I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport, so I wouldn't want to bury it, and I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago, and it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually, mm-hmm. and that's how I felt about my. Uh, My achievement is about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is, uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team.
0: Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal... I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time, and there's quite a bit of a joke about that, but there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened, the ball nestled in the top corner, England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup, but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you?
2: Yes, I think people, um, I, I, I recall exactly what's amazing, I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game, towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee, uh, 10 yards from me, in the middle of the park, and he was waving, at the whistle in his mouth, but waving, play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game, fi- I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm having a whack this ball with everything I've got left, so I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball gets it back to uh, Hans-Pilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours
0: it this goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership be it in sport or in business you can't go sometimes without taking risk.
1: Absolutely,
2: yes. It, absolutely. Yes, it, I mean I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished but that that philosophy is right you're just going to uh, there's an element of, of, of risks, uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm-hmm. the walks of life. an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward.
0: And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, to Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming. But that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now being replaced by the National Health Service, and we've been supporting the Health Service and applauding their efforts, and we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966?
2: Oh, absolutely. Particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing, and I think it was a great idea. Uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for w- what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, when you begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also for me, fantastic, all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66, and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembering exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that who's been around a long time, would still say he is the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a at national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's... It's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined from one to the other. Uh, how how can you possibly be as as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach who's is, who is a team coach, who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's, who's a manager, who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, the wrong reason of passing a coach person to our who's then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the uh, country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot all over, right? different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, Leadership is important, and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're sensible enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching you or managing you. You can learn uh, from that if you're a player you can learn what you think is a good coach what you think is a good manager which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching and management so you can learn as much from people making mistakes you can learn also from making your own mistakes mm. you can do something in the past that think well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again and it, it is important in all of life you learn from your mistakes people will make mistakes uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their their careers.
0: Completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier. Even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket, somewhat at the time, I read somewhere that during your teenage years you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs>
2: Not many people know that as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there were you weren't football pitches or places place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford. We, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite close to it. was a cul-de-sac. It's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, not as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the, str- across the road. Um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the, uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree, where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and it's always the three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and making balsa wood gliders and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of uh, course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they. Um, Took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. That's astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play, apart from the streets. and uh, we were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true.
0: And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you?
2: Well, my father was obviously the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We'd, we'd have, I was born in Ashton Line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Pr- Probably I was the eldest of three. When I was probably about seven or eight, into this particular street uh, called Greenways, and he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence. Going back to that third goal in the World Cup in many years in the back garden, and when we moved on to a, we moved market to a council house somewhere in Chelsea, and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot, and so I at that time. And even today, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed And I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied, they asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school living age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football, it's just that uh, that's how it it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football, I was pretty reasonably good. There was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father, um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood, um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre half at school. Um, he, uh, so I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically.
0: And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it?
2: Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, The sort of went messing about, but t- t- between the two, I had uh, one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and naught not out. I think something I we won the game. Funny, I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v. Lancashire up up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done with some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap, and I'm still playing cricket until September. Essex pre-season early games for those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for mm. a big field player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60 62 63 season, the three years before the World Cup.
0: And when we think about leadership in football,
2: Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had, uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realize it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago. And they're showing a lot of videos of a Banksy. The program about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realize how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward and smother balls, sort of, not just tipping balls out Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometimes you'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for Banksy.
0: And we were very lucky,
2: very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton uh, Jimmy Greaves who didn't play with a world-class player in, put in the squad and Ray Wilson, our left-back I would always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup Some world-class players and Banksy was up there not with the best the best for me to be successful at that level to compete in their level and discipline was one of them and, and um, obviously Tony Wadding saw that and if he wanted to put he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson which we did and um, in those early six months and a couple of years he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea he lost a bit of weight and uh, although he was a little bit in discipline himself hence they needed him to to stay with me, what he was, was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across, the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain, uh, slightly bit of ill-discipline within his, his general life. And you need, at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the, Franz Beckenbaum mm. without any shadow of a doubt, he, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about 8 o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those, uh, those few months. And I think it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club.
0: And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England?
2: Um, Well, I think Ireland was just still well with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in in America, it was the early days of. of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we, was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time. for that particular club. they won, of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a marvellous time for, for that particular club, and very really close. We actually, I think we played Ajax in, in, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course. But I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, that I was. I uh, wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge. And I think uh, West, West, Br- West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contributions to that success that club had. So, um, yes, it, uh, this, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and uh, oh, I think she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for, for about I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience and I've earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen.
0: <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career?
2: Yes, yeah, so I think it's... I think the, that kind of... Uh, whatever the word correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe maybe longer, maybe in longer, not sort of so immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term, when... Um, uh,
1: uh, and
2: I always joke with people, introduce me to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend. And, and I always jokingly say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the, the whatever the word is, so I'm like adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the, time after I finished playing or managing or playing things in during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looks at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years probably.
0: For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sports, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them?
2: Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Malfe Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management on mental courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf because I take it into my my business life and even my uh, talk to my family life if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss. You move them out, and I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I learned during the Alf period even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was an even some with great ability. I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that, for me, is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life.
0: And ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed.
2: Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes.
0: So, Jeff... Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership, and it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further.
2: Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you.
0: Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast.